Adolf Eichmann was a lieutenant colonel in the Nazi SS, and he was one of the major organizers of the Holocaust. He was chief of the Gestapo's Office of Jewish Affairs, and it was his job to facilitate and manage the logistics of deporting masses of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps in German-occupied Eastern Europe, which means Adolf Eichmann was responsible for the deaths of millions of human beings. In fact, he was the man who chose the type of poison gas used in German gas chambers, Zyklon B. After the war, Eichmann fled to Argentina, where he lived under a false identity for 15 years, when in 1960 he was captured by Israeli Mossad operatives. The Mossad is the Israeli equivalent of the CIA. And these Mossad agents secretly abducted Eichmann and brought him to Israel to stand trial in Jerusalem where he was eventually hanged for his crimes against humanity. A woman named Hannah Arendt wrote a famous book about this trial entitled Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, which is an interesting title. When we say something is banal, we're saying that it's trite, it's hackneyed, it's commonplace, what a banal film that latest superhero movie was. We've seen it all before. Hannah Arendt, by giving her book that subtitle, A Report on the Banality of Evil, was saying that there was nothing special, there was nothing particularly unique about the terrible evil which almost destroyed European Jewry. Eichmann and the ordinary Germans who carried out his orders weren't monsters in human flesh. Eichmann was a bureaucrat, a man who accepted the ethnic cleansing premises of his state and thus believed his actions were normal and good. Adolf Eichmann went to his grave with the blood of millions on his hands, yet he went to his grave with a clear conscience. I'm not trying to be controversial by making this correlation, but there is a parallel, I believe, between the banal nature of the sheer evil of something like the Holocaust and the events surrounding the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. When the Son of God is nailed to a cross by his own rebellious image bearers and Jews and Gentiles alike lent their full participation to that evil deed, we're not witnessing the actions of demon monsters. Friends, we're looking in the mirror. We're seeing people just like us. People who are spiritually blind. The murder of Jesus Christ is the sinful outworking of wicked human hearts that have been steeped in the everyday banality of cosmic anarchy and God-defying revolution since Genesis chapter 3. And to sinful human eyes that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus' crucifixion looked like any other crucifixion, one among thousands. There were no displays of divine kingly power to be seen as our Lord writhed in agony between two criminals. Only what looked like a pathetic spectacle of weakness and shame and suffering. <clears throat> but on that cross... The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was dying. 
for sinners. Jesus was dying for all those who the Father had given to him, everyone who would ever call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. He accomplished our salvation, beloved. He died in our place as a, as a wrath-deflecting substitute. Because whatever else the cross of Jesus achieves, it must satisfy God's personal anger against sin, or it achieves nothing. God's sovereign purposes in election, heaven and hell, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, and the Son's obedience to the Father, even unto death, it's all summed up in Jesus' final triumphant death cry, it is finished. But just compare the opening four verses of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, with verses 16, 17, and 18 of our passage this morning. It's astonishing. This is how John begins his book, his theological biography of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all people. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. That's astounding. That's astounding. John is talking about one and the same person. Here's the one who coexisted from eternity past with the other two persons of the Godhead, who is himself fully God. And so deserves nothing but infinite good done to him. And they crucified him? That means Jesus is the divine creator of the tree that supplied the wood for his cross. Jesus created the rocks containing the mineral ore used to fashion the nails that held him there. Jesus is the one whose divine sanction permits his tormentors to draw their next rebellious breath. And they crucified him? How is this so? What's God's purpose in this? Brothers and sisters in Christ, on this Lord's Day and before we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's hear again that old, old story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Once again, let us proclaim to a fallen world that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. The good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' sacrificial death and in consequence, what he will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. And friend, if you're with us today and you're not a believer, if you've yet to bow the knee in repentance and faith and obedience to King Jesus, then I would ask, why bear the 
the condemnation of your sin one moment longer? Why bear the guilt? It's defiling stain. Why stand under God's dreadful sentence of judgment for one more second? Come to Jesus. Come today. Kneel before him. Bow your heart at the foot of his cross. Repent. Believe. Cast your morally outrageous autonomy aside. And listen as I announce what Jesus' victorious sacrifice has accomplished for guilty sinners like you and me. It's so accomplished, friend, it's so completed that our Lord cried with his final breath, It is finished. That is the best news sinners like us could ever hear. It is done. The work of the cross is complete. John chapter 19, verse 16b. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Now, I think to better understand this, it might help us to know something of the, the grisly mechanics of crucifixion, of how that worked in the ancient world. Each criminal, as part of their punishment, carried his own cross on their shoulders, but just the cross member, just the, it's called the patibulum, the, the horizontal bar. They didn't carry the whole crucifix out to the place of execution. Uh, so he would bear the cross member out to the place of public execution. That was the whole point, it had to be public where an upright beam was already fastened into the ground, and he was then made to lie on his back, and he was then nailed to the crossbar. That crossbar was then hoisted along with the victim up to the vertical beam, and then fastened to it. His feet were then nailed to the upright, to which was sometimes attached a piece of wood that served as a kind of uh, seat for the victim's bottom, called a sedecula a seat which partially supported the victim's weight. Now, don't misunderstand this. Uh, providing a seat for the victim's weight is not an act of mercy. The sedecula was, in, was designed to increase the agony of the execution. It was, it was diabolical uh, because in order to breathe while hanging on a cross, to keep the chest cavity open and functioning, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms. Uh, terrible muscle spasms racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. You would suffocate. So the sedecula prolonged life. That seat prolonged life. It prolonged the torture. By partially supporting the body's weight, it encouraged the victim to fight on and on. And so sometimes they would hang there for three, four, five, six days. So, all that's contained in the simple description we read in verse 18. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Now, we looked at the trilingual notice of Pontius Pilate uh, that was fastened above our Lord's head last week. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So let's skip now to verse 23. 
When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So by custom, one of the perks of being on a Roman execution squad was that the clothes of the victim now belong to you. Now normally, a Jew in Palestine wore an undergarment next to the skin, so it's sort of like a shirt reaching from the neck down to the ankles or the knees, as well as an outer garment, something like a robe. Our Lord's execution squad is made up of four soldiers, so they divide Jesus' clothing into four parts. His belt, probably, his sandals, the head covering, and the outer garment, so one for each soldier. That left the undergarment, and it was decided to gamble for this article of clothing so it wouldn't have to be torn. The thing is, however customary this sort of behavior was at a Roman execution, in the case of Jesus' death, this is nothing less than the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 24, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. Psalm 22:18. they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Did you know Psalm 22 is actually the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Uh, and its larger context is quite interesting. Uh, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen: My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Uh, I think Jesus alludes to this just in a few minutes when he, he talks about his thirst. Uh, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So do you see, Jesus repeats David's experience in Psalm 22 at a deeper, climactic level in the history of salvation. And in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. What does he say? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus thus sees his own death as the messianic fulfillment of David's deepest experience of divine abandonment. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood four people. His mother, and, and John is the only evangelist to introduce Mary here, his mother's sister, so Jesus' aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That is, Mary of Magdala, a village on the west shore of Galilee. And John hasn't mentioned Mary Magdalene yet, uh, but she figures prominently in Jesus' resurrection account. And New City will be looking at that next week, Lord willing, as we continue this series. But now we come to a couple of fascinating verses. Look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, so the Apostle John himself, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. 
from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Even as Jesus hung dying on a Roman cross, as the suffering Lamb of God, he took thought of and made provision for his widowed mother. Exodus 20:12, honor your father and your mother. Think too of 1 Timothy 5:8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Barclay writes this, There is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hangs in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away, Jesus never forgot the duties that lay to his hand. Beloved, there there is a human dimension to the cross that we must not lose sight of for all the glory of the atonement. And yes, it might seem a little strange that Jesus doesn't commend Mary into the care of one of his brothers, one of his younger brothers, but Jesus' brothers may not even have been in Jerusalem. Their home was in Capernaum, 150 kilometers away. Also, we read in chapter 7, verse 5, that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. So I don't think it's much of a stretch to think Jesus wanted his widowed mother to be in the care of his beloved disciple for spiritual reasons. The Christian discipleship relationship is closer than blood. Now let me preface what I'm about to say by making it crystal clear that I'm not telling anybody what to do. I don't think the Bible is saying this is what you must do. I'm just, I'm merely asking a question, okay? Christian parents, what arrangements have you legally made in your will for the rearing of your small children if you both should die? Is it your intention that your children should be raised by one of your unbelieving relatives? Or, mom, dad, might you entrust your children to the care of a faithful Christian couple, perhaps members of your local church, people who will love your children and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Something to talk about on the ride home today. But now we come to the supreme moment of all history, the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now notice the contrast. The other characters in this chapter, they on unconsciously fulfill scripture, right? I mean, the soldiers, they're not thinking, we gotta, we gotta fulfill Psalm 22 here today, so let's, let's cast lots to divide his, uh, the Messiah's clothing. No, but Jesus, he is consciously fulfilling Old Testament scripture. He's come to do his Father's will. And there are two Old Testament texts, I think, behind this fulfillment. The first is 
Psalm 22, verse 15, we just looked at it. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The psalmist's tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth because he's thirsty. The other text is likely Psalm 69, 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. Which not only includes then a specific reference to thirst, but giving Jesus wine vinegar is the very thing that the soldiers do next in, in verses 29 to 30. So if we grant that Jesus knew consciously that he was fulfilling scripture, presumably then he knew that by verbally confessing his thirst, he would precipitate the soldier's effort to give him some wine vinegar. So verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there. That, that's a cheap sort of wine that laborers drank. The execution squad ha had brought it along to refresh themselves. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. But don't confuse the drink that's being offered here with wine, the, the wine that was mixed with myrrh, which some charitable person gave to Jesus on, along his way to Golgotha. Mark 15, 23, we read, Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Because that drink was a sedative, meant to dull the agony. So Jesus refused it, fully resigned to drink the cup of suffering that the Father had assigned him. But why has Jesus called for this drink? Because he wishes to say something that will be heard, and so he needs to moisten his parched throat. Verse 30. This is the Mount Everest of the whole scene. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the Greek text, Jesus says just one word, tetelestai, but John doesn't speak of the tone in which Jesus utters this word. However, Matthew and Mark, in those gospel accounts, we read that Jesus gave a loud cry before he died. So it would appear that loud cry was, it is finished. But as an English translation, it is finished captures only part of the meaning. It's the part that focuses on the completion of the deed. And yes, certainly, Jesus' work was done, but in religious contexts, that word bears the overtone of fulfilling or accomplishing one's religious obligations. Which is why, this is why two chapters before, in light of the impending cross, in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father in verse 4 of that chapter, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing, by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And what does the evangelist say back in chapter 13, verse 1? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, ice telos, it's the same word. Not only to the end, he loved them to the end, but to the full extent that was mandated by his mission that his father gave to him to complete. He loved them to the end. And beloved, the way, the way that Jesus displays his unflagging love for those who are in the world is in the cross immediately ahead. Do you see? That means in John's Gospel, Jesus' cross is the visible presentation of the redeeming love of God the Father and God the Son. 
Jesus' cross is the, the ultimate, the, the, the superlative manifestation of God's powerful, saving action on our behalf. Mount Pleasant, you didn't hear the two sermons I preached on, John, on Jesus' upper room prayer from John 17. So New City may have you at a bit of a disadvantage at this point, but we, we might be coming to this text with more understanding. Uh, because if we were to paraphrase an important part of that prayer in, back in John 17, a prayer that has direct bearing on the cross, it has direct bearing on what Jesus says, his final words as, he, as he's about to die, it would be this. This is a kind of a paraphrase. Father, glorify your Son. Glorify me both in the wretched cross of Calvary just a few short hours from now and glorify me in my vindicating exaltation to come, when I'm restored to my rightful place in the presence of your unshielded glory. Glorify your Son, Father, that your Son may glorify you. For by this means all your goodness will be displayed and your will accomplished. It won't bring you glory, Father, if my sacrifice on the cross isn't acceptable in your sight. Or if I'm not glorified in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That would mean the divine mission has failed. And your so sovereign will has been thwarted. So I pray, Father, sovereignly works that I might truly say on that cross, in the moment of my death, it is accomplished. And that's just what happens, brothers and sisters. Jesus' prayer is answered. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He gives up his spirit. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, the day used to prepare for the Sabbath when you couldn't work. Hence, it's a day of preparation. The next day, the Saturday Sabbath, would begin by Jewish reckoning at sundown, so that would be Friday evening for us. And that year was a special Sabbath, not only because it fell during the Passover feast, but because the second day of Passover was the very important sheaf offering, which we read about in Leviticus 23, 9-14. Now, Normal Roman practice was to leave the bodies of crucifixion on the crosses until they died. That could take days, and then they would just leave the carcasses there for a while for the, for the vultures to come. Just, it, it was a, a grisly object lesson. This is what you get if you defy Rome. But if there was a reason to hasten the death, then the soldiers smashed their shins with an iron mallet. Because that prevents, then, the victim from pushing up with their legs to keep their chest cavity open. And so, in short order, they suffocate. That's how you die from crucifixion. It's not through blood loss. It's through suffocation. But the Mosaic law insisted that anyone hanged on a pole, usually after execution, should not remain there overnight. Such a person was under God's curse. This is Deuteronomy 21. They were literally, they were literally... God damned. And to leave him exposed would be to desecrate the land. And presumably, it was viewed as doubly offensive 
if the day on which the desecration occurred was a special Sabbath with that sheep offering. So the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Verse 32. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. So, I mean, it doesn't say this, but it makes sense. That must mean that Jesus is more out front. And these two that are with him are behind him. So the soldier came along behind, broke the first man's leg. The second man's leg continues to circle, and Jesus is out front. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. All right. We need to understand what's happening here on two levels, medically and theologically. Medically speaking, there's a two-layered membrane which covers the inside of the thorax and lungs called the pleura. Its role is to cushion the lungs and reduce any friction which may develop between the lungs, the ribcage, and the chest cavity. And in tests performed on cadavers, on dead bodies, it's been shown that where a chest has been severely injured, but without penetration, up to, three, up to two liters of hemorrhagic fluid gathers between the pleura lining the ribcage and the lining of the lung. It just gathers in there, building up. And this then separates with the clearer serum at the top and a deep red layer at the bottom. And if the chest cavity is then pierced at the bottom, both layers flow out. That's what happens here, medically speaking. That's what's happening. But both blood, both water and blood are full of theological significance in John's gospel. So that's how the other fluid that came out was blood. So the evangelist uses the word blood in the sense of bodily fluid in only one other place in this book. And that's in John chapter 6. Let's turn there quickly. This is important. John chapter 6, where we find the explanatory setup for this word blood. In verse 35, John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And that verse, beloved, explains what Jesus means a few verses on when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's not cannibalism, right? It's this. Eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood are metaphors. And verse 35 explains the meaning. It means coming to Jesus and believing in him. John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Right? In other words, back at verse 35, unless you come to me and believe in me, you have no life in you. Six fifty-four. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Come to Jesus, believe in him, and you will have eternal life, and he will raise you at the last day. So that's the blood reference. This chapter is the only chapter, the only other place in the book where the word blood is mentioned. That's the reference. 
so let just I want you to let that simmer on your back burner for a second. We'll return to it in a second, but both blood and water come out of Jesus' side when his side is pierced. The word water is used a lot in John's Gospel. Turn to John 4 for a minute. Our Lord is talking to the Samaritan woman, John 4, 10 to 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this living water then is further explained in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, verse 37. John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, same language again, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, out of his heart in the Greek. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, The Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Brothers and sisters, this means that what we read of in John 19, this flowing of blood and water from our Lord's side, is nothing less than a sign of the life and the cleansing that flows from Jesus' death. The life and the cleansing, the blood of Jesus Christ, His sacrificial, redemptive death, That is the basis of eternal life in the believer. That's what purifies us from every sin. And the water is symbolic of cleansing, eternal life, and the Spirit of God. All these blessings are conditioned by the death of Jesus. There is no other way. We come to Him. We believe in Him. There is no other Savior. And so, God will ask each of us on that last day, what have you done with my son? From his side flowed cleansing and life. What have you done with my son? His death secured for sinners the Holy Spirit. What have you done with my son? But make no mistake, loved ones, none of this just happens randomly. We read that many aspects of Jesus' crucifixion are in keeping with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Roman soldiers dividing Jesus' clothes and casting lots, that fulfills Old Testament scripture. Jesus' indication of thirst, that fulfills Old Testament scripture. And now, the soldiers not breaking Jesus' legs, but instead piercing his side with a spear, is all in keeping with prophecy made hundreds of years before. Look at verse 36. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Bones not being broken. What's that a reference of? The Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, Passover commemorates the night when the angel of death passed over the homes of those Jews 
who were slaves in Egypt who had daubed the blood of a slaughtered lamb on the doorposts of their homes 1,500 years before Jesus. Because that lamb died, the firstborn son did not. It's a picture of substitutionary death. And when the Passover sacrifice was instituted, it was stipulated that not one bone of that lamb was to be broken. And John sees Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb. Do you see, Jesus is the Passover lamb slain for his people. Jesus dies in their place. Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. And just as the Passover lamb brought life to the Israelite firstborn males, so Jesus brings eternal life to all for whom he dies. Verse 37, and as another scripture says, which means John's referencing two Old Testament texts right in a row, both finding their fulfillment in Jesus' death. As another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Let me just read to us that text that John's referencing here. It's from Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10. Yahweh says through his prophet, Zechariah, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Or Zechariah 13.1 On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. John the Apostle, who also wrote this gospel, but also the book of Revelation, wrote this in Revelation 1.7. Look, speaking of Jesus, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Many Jews, then and now, reject Jesus precisely because they believe the crucifixion proves he is not the Messiah. But John quotes these texts in order to prove that what happened to Jesus is precisely what was predicted in the Old Testament. And in Revelation 1-7, John claims that those who reject Jesus will wail, they will mourn on account of him, yet he announces this in the hope that some will repent. Repent in response to this announcement of Jesus' future coming. Friend, you can be certain, you can be sure that Jesus will come. He will return. And you can likewise be sure that if you are his enemy on that day, you will wail and mourn at his appearing. Verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And, and these words are plainly designed to emphasize in the most solemn manner possible that what's just been recorded is the reliable testimony of a reliable witness, John the disciple. And why is it recorded? Verse 35b, and he testifies so that you may believe also. In fact, 
the production of faith in his readers, that's John's main purpose in writing his gospel, isn't it? We looked at this three weeks ago at our first joint service, John 20, 31. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. True life. Eternal life. That's the promise Jesus' death holds out to every sinner. Every sinner who bows the knee before him in repentance and faith. So, sinner, rest. Rejoice. Rest in Jesus' finished work. And rejoice in the unassailable salvation Jesus, our Passover lamb, has won for his covenant people. It is accomplished. In conclusion, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, let me just read the remainder of the chapter. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, take these preached words of truth and teach. Grant, we pray, new birth. Grant life through faith in Jesus, our crucified and resurrected Messiah. May Jesus today in our midst bring glory to the Father through himself being glorified in the lives of your people. We pray these things in his beautiful, soul-saving, life-giving name. Amen.